I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Mike Burris, and this is a special live event of Straight Talk hosted by the Sydney Roosters Business Club. Peter Volandis is the Australian Rugby League Commission Chairman and well-known for that. But he's also the chief executive and board member with Racing New South Wales. So which one do you reckon is his side hustle? You could say nothing in sport happens without Volandis. He's described as a hard-willed enthusiast with a crash or crash-through style of negotiation. As a child of immigrant parents, Peter grew up in Wollongong, New South Wales, where he attended high school and uni back in the day. In 2018, he was appointed as an independent board member of the Australian Rugby League Commission. He's seen as a visionary of the game of rugby league. Peter has transformed institutions since the age of 27 when he was put in charge of Harold Park Paceway and made the Friday night trots really cool again. This laid the foundation for his role with Racing New South Wales, holding the position since 2004. But Peter's leadership during COVID showed the impressive power he holds as an NRL chairman. We saw players get back on the field first out of all sports. Peter is someone determined to pay back the debt to the game for the life opportunity it's provided him. So it's time for No Bullshit in front of a live audience with Peter Volandis. G'day, everybody. Thanks very much for coming along. Um, We've been trying to put this together for... Pretty much two years now. COVID has got in our way a number of times. Uh, and on every occasion, uh, Peter's been very generous with offering his, his time, but we keep running into uh, obstacles and hurdles. But here we are today, and I appreciate everybody's patience with this. And welcome to uh, a Straight Talk podcast. This is our very first live audience podcast. And welcome to Peter Volandis. Thank, Thank you, Mark. Very much. So I'm extraordinarily curious about this guy. I want to know where he was born and where he grew up. Well, I was actually born in Kithara in Greece and um, I was born in the house. And to this day, I don't know what day I was born because firstly, I used to celebrate my birthday on the 14th of May. And then when I came to Australia, I discovered on the passport the 17th of May. So I said to my mother, when was I born? She said, I don't know. It's either the 14th or the 17th because you're born at home. So luckily it's the same star sign. So I'm not, uh, so I've got the biggest birthday celebration there is. But I think um, in Greece, they, you know, it probably took three days to register. So it's probably the 14th rather than the 17th. It's funny, you know, my dad's exactly the same thing. My dad's uh, passport says born on the 23rd of January, but he celebrates his birthday on the 13th of January because his mother told him he was born on the 13th of January in Greece. And usually what it was is the day they got you registered at the church. Right. And mum, your mum would have been, would have given birth to you and would have had to wait until she was well enough to walk up to the church to register your birth. And uh, that's probably what happened. And she says, what does it matter? You know, 14, 17, doesn't matter. But it means a fair bit to me. <laughs> yes, particularly if you're curious. And what age did you come to Australia? So I was three and uh, we were the typical migrant uh, family. Uh, we came out on the Patrice, which was a big liner and it took 30 days to, to come to Australia. And I actually uh, was very sick on the, on, the, on the cruise because I had a bleeding nose and, and wouldn't stop bleeding. And um, there's a lot in other sports that wish that I did bleed to death, but I didn't. So, um, so I am here. So that, that's what I really remember the most is, um, you know, being in the boat hospital most of the time coming out. And, and the one thing that really amazes me every time I see it is when we came into you know, Sydney Harbour, it was all the lights and 
Um, and even to this day, it, it, there's something mystical about when I see all these lights on the harbour. That's quite interesting. It, uh, obviously, you've never been on, probably never been on a ship before. Did you go via the Suez? Mate, I wouldn't know where we. I, I don't remember where we came. I think it wasn't through the Suez, you know. But um, look, you wouldn't remember. I wouldn't remember, no. But in, in those days, too, I'm sure you weren't sort of in the uh, presidential suite or uh, sort of sitting up the top in some sort of with a beautiful balcony and all that sort of stuff. You're probably down in the bowels of the ship, which is probably another reason why you weren't feeling too too flash thirty days on a ship going at sea. When you arrived in Australia, where did you, where did you guys go to? I mean, so look, my there. auntie uh, first came out to Australia, and they, you know, as a typical Greek family, they opened up a cafe in Wollongong called uh, uh, the Central Cafe and it was very well known actually because they had the best hamburgers in Wollongong. Um, so my father came out 12 months before we did and left my mum and my two brothers back in Greece and so he came out and got a job, bought a house, uh, a very modest home but certainly a good investment now um, and then we came out 12 months after he did and my mother worked in the cafe and my dad then worked at the steelworks. Um, and he was one of these, probably where I get my work ethic from, you know, he'd go to work at six o'clock. You're supposed to finish at three o'clock. But in those days, they used to be called doublers. So you'd go from three o'clock to midnight and then you'd go back the next day at six. So he was a very hard worker. And my mother, uh, she would start work at seven o'clock and finish at eight o'clock at night. So we didn't see our parents, you know, very much. So we sort of had to fend for ourselves. So, you know, that's probably... A part of my makeup now is that, you know, for most of the, my life I've had to, you know, look after myself. It's very interesting that I had similar sort of background. So, and people say to me, you work too hard. But I say, I, I don't think I do. I mean, it's just what I do. It's how I live my life. I'm not obsessed with work. It's just what I saw as a kid growing up and I just adopted that process. Do you feel as though at any stage? Because I've I've read legendary stories about how many how how hard you work, and you know you you're you're a chairman of lots of different institutions. You're always doing charitable stuff. You've got to go to events. Your work ethic, um, as I said, is of le- legendary status. Do you feel it is that way, or you have an obsession with this, or is this just what Peter Volandis does? I think it's just what Peter Volandis does. It's it's a necessity. It's not that I want to do it. But if you want to get the outcome, you've got to put the work in. And it's as simple as that. No, no one gets an outcome by not working or um, going the hard way, in my view. You know, if you want to be lazy and do nothing, you get nothing. If you want to work hard, no matter what your ability is or your intelligence, you will always get an outcome. And that's how I've been. Is But plus, you know, I saw my mother and my father work 14-hour days and I worked from the age of eight myself. So I used to work eight-hour days stacking the cafe chips and cigarettes and, and I remember making thick shakes for Steve Rogers who was a you know, legend in rugby league at the time. Um, and so I, I learned from a young age that you have to work hard to get to where you are. I bought my own car with my own money. I sent myself through university um, because I didn't want my parents to do it because I saw how hard they worked to, to make the money. So it was up to me to do the same thing. So you, were you conscious that you came from a working class family and or a migrant family? Was that a thing you were quite conscious of or were you immune from all that given where you grew up in Wollongong? Very conscious of it. And at first, which I really feel ashamed, is you, you didn't want to be that family. You were embarrassed about that family. In trying to assimilate with the Aussie kids, you, you didn't want them to know that your father was a wog and your mother was a wog in a cafe. You tried to avoid it as much as you could. And now I'm so proud of it. You know, it's the complete opposite. It's funny that uh, when you say a wog, and a lot of people here in terms of age group might not have experienced that, some would have. Um, what, what, I mean, what did you sort of, I mean, I experienced the same stuff. So I grew up in Punchbowl, went to school in Lakemba. You know, there were either Lebanese, Greeks or Aussies. And um, you sort of copped a fair bit because of what you had in your lunchbox, for example. Um, you know, it might have been uh, melisane or something else, you know, like some Greek food from the night before <laughs> you had in your, in your box, which, by the way, everyone loves today. Uh, everybody loves today. But, they, and, did, but they didn't back then, though. They I didn't. They you, didn't. They, you know, if it wasn't Devon and tomato sauce on a, on, a ha- on a sandwich, which I used to ask, can I get that? I used to ask mum, no way, you're not having that, no way. Um, 
what defined you as a wog? I mean, was it the way you ate? Was it the way you looked? Was it your surname or was it, what was it? Look, it got to a point where I wouldn't take my lunchbox. I, I can really relate to what you're saying because they'd always stir you about your lunchbox and um, so in the end I didn't take it. I'd prefer not to eat than, than to be, you know, picked on on it. But for me it was even harder because my parents couldn't afford childcare and there wasn't much childcare then anyway. So they sent me to school a year. They lied about uh, my age and I've been lying about it ever since. Um, so, so I went to school at probably three and a half and... And I was in the playground, couldn't speak English, you couldn't really assimilate with anyone. So you got naturally picked on. I was the smallest kid. I was just a complete uh, easy mark for somebody. And and that's what it was. So it, it was very, very, like I dreaded going to school, you know, and I had to do something about it because it was either do something and survive or or you know, perish basically, and that's where sport comes into it. And that's why sport, in my view, is so important for kids to assimilate with other people. It gives you friends for life. It gives you purpose. Um, and that's why I'm in rugby league is to repay the debt that because it was rugby league that got me in with the with the Aussie kids. So, you know, I started playing with them, became mates, um, and then I would try my hardest um, in the game. So. I was part of them, you know, so I wanted to be uh, beneficial to them rather than just this wog kid that couldn't speak English. I wanted to, you know, I used to tackle everything that, that moved. I, I used to tackle the parents if they got in the way. Um, and, you know, the orange boy at halftime, I'd tackle him. Uh, it was, it was, so that was what I did when I first started playing was just tackle, just, you know, because you didn't need any ability to do that. You just stuck your, your, your head in anywhere it goes and your arms around their legs and, and bring them down. And, so for me, the saviour early in my, in my childhood was, was sport and in particular rugby league and later on actually racing too because uh, racing's been a big part of my life as well. So uh, at what point do you think, I mean, you're a three-year-old boy, four-year-old boy, five-year-old, and you just go and keep playing footy, going to school. At what point does someone like you become conscious of what sport did for you? It, it didn't hit me at the time. Um, all I knew at the time was that I wasn't being called a wog anymore or I wasn't bashed up or I was – that's – to me, it was all about survival, what, what you do to want to go to school, what, what, what do you do to, to avoid them. You know, I used to get on the bus and, and all the eyeballs were on you and you'd, you were dreading someone yelling out, sit down, you wog. You know, that, that's the fear. It was, there was more fear and self-esteem and who you were and – and so I guess at the time, I just grabbed sport because it's the only thing I knew that I could possibly become, you know, part of the Australian gang, I guess, in a sense. It's, and so it's, sport is a great equaliser. Have you taken any of those, those feelings or any of those experiences growing up as a kid into what you tried now to pay forward for young men and women in the two sports that you represent, but let's talk about rugby league. Absolutely. And the, the one that really hit me the hardest uh, since coming to rugby league is the Indigenous kids. You know, they've, you know, I thought I did it tough. They do it a lot tougher than me. And, and Wayne Bennett told me a story which I think sums it up. And it was Latrell Mitchell. He, uh, he, he, he asked Wayne to go up to Taree with him. So he goes up to Taree and he disappears for about 45 minutes and he comes back with about $500 worth of fish and chips, takes them in the middle of the park and hundreds of Indigenous kids ran to have the fish and chips. And Wayne said to, to Latrell, why did you do that? And he said, well, that was me. That was me one day. You know, that this is the light at the end of their tunnel is to have sport. And in particular, I think the Indigenous community, that's the one hope they have is um, is to play rugby league or that other horrible game, I think it's called FL or something, AFL or something. Um, so that, that they that they want to, you know, succeed in. And that sort of helps me a lot. But also any new migrant kid that comes in will do it tough. I, it, it, like it or not, our, our society is still got a level of racism um, where people are treated differently. And, and look, and I don't blame the Aussie kids when I was young because they were intimidated just as much as I was intimidated by them. They were intimidated by me. They didn't know who I was. They didn't, you know, who's this kid coming from some other country into their country? Um, so, yeah, look, I'd like to see the Indian kids and the Asian kids play rugby league. And that's one of the uh, real ambitions I have is to get those kids to play to play um, rugby league because you don't see many Indian kids playing rugby league. You don't see many Asian kids playing rugby league. When, as I'm uh, 
Helm Mastry, I can't say his name, uh, the Lebanese were winger for the Bulldogs. Once Ma- he came in, Hasmo Mastry, uh, he he developed a new a new beginning for Lebanese kids um, in the Bulldogs. And now you go there, you know, it's it's that's the fan base. So we'll need to do the same for all our cultures in Australia. We're all one, you know. And the one thing I learned, and I try my hardest, and it is you've got to try your hardest in doing it, is to always be respectful and nice to people because they're all everyone has got a self-esteem everyone there's no reason to be mean or nasty or unkind to somebody and um so i try my hardest in anything i do to to you know respect that person no matter who they are and i'll give you a little story which and i which i think um shows you what an outcome you can get if you if you have that philosophy in treating everyone the same and I've been, I've been very lucky to to meet prime ministers and princes and all that sort of stuff but I treat the cleaner exactly the same as I would treat the prime minister of Australia and I think that's very important and I'll tell you how it came back to me um, when we were wanted to start the game on the 28th of May and I'm sure we'll talk about that um, it, there were some difficult times and the last hurdle was the referees were going to go on strike because um, we were going to go back to one referee we didn't consult them etc and the mistake I made is I didn't communicate with them. So one day I called all the referees in and spoke to them and convinced them that, you know, we're on the right track. But then about two or three weeks later, I got a letter uh, from one of the referees who said to me, you know, it was me that convinced him to go back, he said in his letter, um, because I will never forget that 25 years ago, you gave me a chance as an Indigenous kid to be a cleaner. And more so, you, you treated my father like a king who was a cleaner that worked for you. He said, you're the only CEO that ever went to a funeral uh, of a cleaner. And he said, I told the referees that's what you were like. And that's what got him started. So being respectful to anyone does have its benefits in essence. I didn't expect that. Uh, and I don't do it for that reason. I just do it because um, that's what I want to be treated like and that's what I hated the most growing up was how mean and nasty people can be and and that's why it amazes me with social media that these people get on on these platforms and they're nasty and they're mean and they're horrible and I just don't know what gets into them to to be like that you know so I think um for all of us I think the lesson is you know treat everyone with the same respect that, that you want to be treated treated as but that's interesting you're sort of saying is that was more an instinct than a strategy but often instincts work well, we actually grab hold of them and we put them into our strategy basket. Now you're a leader and leaders must have strategies to run an organisation. Do you use now those old instincts that worked well, which you, you, know, you learnt about growing up, seeing your parents, whatever, do you actually try to impart those as strategies within the organisations which you lead? Look, I, I, I'm a person that believes that you learn something every day. So all my life I've learned something, you know, and I learned from my parents, I learned from school, I learned from – so you're, you're a, really a – whole life is a bunch of experiences and you put those experiences together to develop who you are and, and I guess it develops the strategies that you do as well. So, yes, look, it's, it's life lessons that I've learned over time and – Probably the one that I adapt to the most is I like people around me that are can do. You know, I say to my staff, give me five reasons why you can do it. Don't give me five reasons why you can't because I'm not interested. You know, we want to, everything is possible if you want to put the effort into it. So, and that's, so all my staff in racing have been with me my whole the whole time there because they're all can do people. They want to, and they get rewarded uh, at, at the end of it. So, to me, it's all about getting a particular outcome and whatever experience you need to take from life in getting that outcome, you just grab it from your, 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 your basket and, and implement it. So you, you became the typical migrant kid, um, went through school down in Wollongong, played footy, you know, you sort of integrated, et cetera. Then you went to university, typical migrant move, send the kid to university. I don't want my kid to work in a steel factory. In my case, my dad worked in a metal factory. Don't want my kid to work in a metal factory. My mum dragged me to university, enrolled me. I didn't want to go. Um, get your degree. How did you end up in racing in New South Wales? Well, it was, it was quite interesting because um, my grandparents passed away very early, you know, and 
I never saw them again once we left Greece. And one of my friends who happens to be, name is Wayne Pierce, not the same Wayne Pierce that plays rugby league, but a different Wayne Pierce. He lived across the road from this uh, two older people that uh, owned horses. And so I used to go over there on a Friday night when Harold Park trots were on and watch the races with them and was absolutely absorbed by his stories about racing, etc. So I started punting from the age of about nine. Um, so I'd go down to the local TAB. I would get somebody that was 18 to place the bets. The only problem I had was that every time I won, he took a cut. Um, so I, I learned about the tax department very early in the piece. Um, so I used to call him the tax man. But I used to win and, and was quite weird. Um, and so I used to spend my Fridays and Saturdays watching the races and that's how, so I had an ambition to get into racing at some point in time. And I was 26 at the time and they advertised for a new, in back in those days called the general manager of Harold Park. And I thought I had no chance of getting it, but I thought, geez, why not put in for it and for the experience. So I went up there and um, basically you know, did a lot of homework as to what they were doing wrong and told them what they were doing wrong. And then about, never heard anything about it. And then six, six weeks later, this harness racing driver comes in and says, um, oh, here you've got the job as general manager of Harold Park. And I hadn't even been told at that particular point in time. So I was the youngest ever CEO of a metropolitan race club. And I was fortunate in a sense because they were going backwards. They'd lost a million and a half. They used to have the greyhounds there at the time and they used to get $800,000 a year rent. They lost them. So I was about $3 million behind before I even started. And it was the chairman's last year. And he said, look, we can't show a million and a half loss. Can you do some creative accounting and hide a bit of it so, and carry it forward to the next year? And being a loyal person I was, I said, yeah, no problem. So I carried another million dollars um, into the next year, not realising that shit, that was my first year as the CEO. <laughs> and I've got, another million, wear I've got to wear another million dollars. Um, which So over the time we, we got the club uh, back into in making a profit and it, they used to do some stupid things like, I'll give, just to give you an example of how bad it was run, they used to pay all the staff that used to come in the, in the evening before they started work. So, so they'd all go in, get their money. So I followed one and I followed him and I kept going. I nearly ended up on the um, you know, number 33 bus because he just went straight home. He, he, didn't, um, he didn't even work. And there was probably four or five of them. They'd collect their money. Easy. It was like, a, like an ATM machine except it was a human one. And they'd give you the money and they'd go. So the first thing I did was everyone got paid after the event um, by electronic means. And that, so that's how badly they were run. They used to take the mail in a chauffeured limousine or they used to go to the bank in a chauffeured limousine and they wondered how they made a $1.8 million loss. So I've always tried my hardest never to get rid of staff. I've always made it to be more efficient, do things in a more cost-effective way. You know, you can, get, you can do that thing exactly the same way for half the price. So that's the, the culture that I've implemented to all my staff um, is that, if, you know, some of my staff actually catch buses to, to meetings or they catch a train to a meeting rather than getting a cab because that's, and, and that's because it's the culture in their head that we do things cost effectively. You do them in a way where um, you get the best return. So that's what we implemented at Harold Park and I was there um, for 15 years and, and we became an entrepreneurial club because, you know, we, we had several businesses that I started up at the time. So we didn't have to rely totally on, our revenue from, from racing. And Harold Park was a bit of a, an institution on a Friday night, so we made it a, a must place to be. And the, the promotion that I did that was the most successful was a thing called 10 for 30. So you had paid $10 and you got $30 in Harold Park money with my head on it rather than the Queen's. So, and then you'd spend that $30. And then my board said, you're mad. You know, you're giving all this money away. I said, no, because they're gonna run out on their $30 and then they're going to pay our 300% margin on our drinks. And, you know, like when you buy a drink, it's a 300% profit margin on it. And so basically, once they run out of money, they're going to, and sure enough, it was our most profitable night. And it got um, more, it's got a bigger crowd than we used to get out for our feature race meetings. And they were all the younger demographic. They were all university students. They were, and in their head, they thought they were getting value. You know, for the 10 bucks, they were getting 30, but they spent the 30 in about, you know, half an hour and then we was, were using their own money. Um, but what I found from it, and I've implemented it later, is that they came back. So it was like, rather than paying $30,000 and putting that on TV, give the money to the person to enjoy and then let that person promote you word to mouth. And 
And that's exactly what happened. So on, a, on those Friday nights, we were jam-packed with university students. But 25% of them used to come back on other nights because we only did it once a month. And they became regular customers or engaged customers from that night. You, you sort of attract them and then you've got to uh, transform them into, into regulars. And it's the same thing with rugby league to a certain extent. You've got to get a, a, a viewer that's, you know, a casual viewer and turn him into an engaged viewer, turn him into a, a, a tribal viewer. And, and that's why we've introduced them, the rule changes to make the game more entertaining and um, to get that casual viewer. And it's worked because at the moment we have the highest TV ratings we've ever had for rugby league. And, and I think it's because we've made the game a little bit more entertaining than what it was. It wasn't, you know, it was too predictable. It was too, uh, you know, dimension, one dimensional. And, and I think that's an important lesson for business in my view is don't rely, you know, don't be complacent. You always need to improve your product, no matter what the product is. Demographics change and people's tastes change and there's a lot more competition for that disposable dollar. So you need to completely innovate your product, keep it up with a current market trend otherwise. And there's so many sports that I've seen, so many businesses, you know, and I'm sure everyone's heard the story of Kodak. Now Kodak was the first company to have the digital camera, but it had a, it had a massive business on film. So it put the digital camera away, not wanting to, you know, lose its film business. And then some other company found the digital camera and where's Kodak now? It's in receivership. It, it didn't survive. Who got a film camera now? Nobody. And that lesson really sunk in my head in any business I do is that don't rely on what the current trend or taste is. Always have young people around you um, and ask them what, what they like, what their trend is. And, and that's what I do in my current roles is I have a lot of young people telling me what they, you know, like, you know, what is uh, – uh, Snapchat and what is uh, uh, TikTok and what is all these things because because you need to learn about them you need to know about them and you need to embrace them otherwise you you you're yesterday's person. Well, that that's very interesting. That's a, a form of staying relevant, particularly as we get older and we 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 sort of apply senior roles. One of the things I found quite interesting, and for those people in this room who don't know this, uh, being in Greek in Greek sort of um, culture, people who come from Kythera are known as the best business people coming out of Greece. And, uh, of course, Nick Politis is a Kytherian as well. And, in fact, um, Peter was telling me earlier that um, his mother, they come from, his mother comes from the same village as Nick. Yeah, it does. And, and his mother and Nick look similar. Yeah, I, look, I, th I thought they were Tasmanian for a minute. They, they, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was quite weird because everyone, you know, when I got into rugby league, said, oh, he's Nick Politis' man, they're from the same. I had never met Nick. Uh, I think I passed him, brushed him once, uh, not, you know, uh, sort of casually saw him, but never knew him. And I only really met him once um, I got into become a commissioner on the, on the ARLC. And, you know, Nick, he takes to that little cafe in the corner there and, um, and I looked at him, I thought, geez, I'm looking at my mother. Like, he, he looks very, <laughs> very, very much the same. And, uh, and they are from the same village. And, and, you know, that village has only got two or 300 people. There's 2,000 people in Kithara and there's 150,000 in Sydney. So you can see... Um, they became rabbits once they got to Sydney, but uh, and there's even more in uh, in Melbourne. So uh, and yes, look, uh, George Lucas, who is the um, founder of Star Wars, I think he's a Catherian. George Miller, who did Mad Max, he's a Catherian. You got Nick Politis. You know, for for Ireland, that's only got two thousand people. It has had an enormous amount of you know we've had Supreme Court judges, um, you know, very powerful business people. So it, it, it it's certainly uh, a good place to come from. Well, uh, my my dad says uh, in Greek, I won't say, but he says, you know, the Kytherians, they jump over the gate to save the hinge. He said they're very cost efficient. And, uh, and it's funny, Peter was talking about cost efficiency. It's, not, it's one thing just to talk about it, say that's, uh, that's an ideal, great. But what's really interesting is that you do what I think is really important is that you actually go out and find where the cost can be saved. In other words, you follow home the person who was getting paid before the event occurred to see exactly what happens. In other words, you're quite happy to step down from your position and get into the weeds and do your research so that you're not only relying on other people's views, but you can actually see for yourself firsthand. And I think that probably comes from maybe how you're brought up, you know, being prepared to be a, um, you know, work in a fish and chip shop or work in uh, wherever you had to work and do your eight hours a day and, and, and pack the shelves with 
whatever it is you're packing the shelves with. Um, do you think that impact that that, that your uh, youth had on you and therefore your ability to be very cost effective or cost efficient, is that something that you try to drum into all the people who work in your environments um, as, as the say, called, so-called the leader of that, those businesses? Is that something, do you drum that into them or do you try to select or recruit people who have that view in the first place? No, I, I think you've got to develop a culture um, and rather than having, you know, you need to have a culture of cost effectiveness in that you have to think twice when you buy something or do something. And that's, so I don't drum it into them. I just lead by example. So, you know, when I got on the ARLC, I caught the train from the airport to the city rather than getting a, you know, and when they, you lead, when you lead by example, people see it, you know, and, and then they act on it. And it's, it's quite, it's quite um, remarkable really how easy it is to develop that culture when you lead by example. So when I was at Harold Park, I went to the stables and mucked out the stables. So I wanted to show them that I'm not that good that I can't go and collect the horse poo like they do. Um, so I knew how long they would take to clean the horse poo too. So Did you bag it and sell it? No, no, I didn't. I wish I knew that at the time, Mark. I probably would have, but no. I, and, you know, I worked in the judge's box. I worked in doing the away prices. So I did everything that the staff did to show them that I'm one of them. I'm not elitist. I'm not... You know, up myself. I'm just, I'm just basically one of them. So, and they look at it. If it's good enough for him to to be cost effective, it's good enough for me. And that's how I install it into. Is you do it by by example and by leadership. In that they see that if you're doing it, well, they've got to do it too. It's very clever, and it's, there's no point you doing that though unless they become aware of it. So, if you're catching the train or the tram or wherever it happens to be, mucking out the stables, if they don't know about it, then that is of no benefit to you whatsoever or no benefit to the business whatsoever. And as I said earlier, some of your exploits are, in terms of work ethic are somewhat legendary, you know, like the, the time you get up in the morning, you know, you, you're holding like major positions in major sporting organisations. You know, I, don't, I often think how the hell does he do both of them at the same time? Um, how do you get people to know about it or do you just hope that it's going to seep out into the system? How do you tell people about it? Do well, you get on Instagram and say, here I am, photograph? No, 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 look, I guess people see the emails coming at half past three or four o'clock okay, in the morning. Okay, very good, so, that's it. So that, you know, everyone says, you know, why are you sending me an email at four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning? So I said, that's when I start work. You know, that's when I have to start work. And one of the things I felt guilty about doing the rugby league was I didn't want to let racing down. You know, I wanted to make sure that I spent the same amount of time, the same effort, the same um, in racing as I did in rugby league. So the way you do that is you've got to get up earlier and work later or, and work on weekends. But during COVID, it was probably the greatest gift for me to have both sports because it gave us, it gave us power. Um, it gave, it, having the both of them, sort of alerted governments and and cetera. And racing did not stop during COVID. And if I had my time again, rugby league wouldn't have stopped. I was um, manoeuvred in stopping it, which I regret now, but but we should never have stopped. But uh, so I, it's it's all about time management and, and how you do it. And, but people, when you muck out a stable, the word gets around pretty quick. You don't, you know, when you're working in the judges box, they all know you're up there. Um, when you're working on the admission gates, they know you're there because they're, they're the same people that are in there week out. And I'm a big believer of word to mouth and that gets around as quick as, you know, very quickly. And it amazes me how that culture is installed in the staff. Like if you go to Racing New South Wales now, it's the complete opposite to was when I first started where, um, I'll give you an example, they used to get a... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. ...to collect the mail, and it used to cost 80 grand a year. Now, that's okay, but it was 100 metres up the road. Um, so what we did is we said, well, let's put an extra staff member on, get the benefit of it. They can collect the staff, and it was half, half the cost. It's just little things like that that... You know, so t- today, um, you know, they take it in turns in racing New South Wales. Who goes and mails or goes to the bank? Who? It's it's all part of a, uh, a like a roster system. So, and that culture has been installed from that to this in in you know in very quick time because again at that stage racing was battling and you know we were costing a lot of money as an administrative body and we had to bring it down so we can return the money to. The participants, you know, or if you're a public, the way I look at racing or rugby league is where the body that generates the revenues puts the revenues together. But our participants and all our clubs in rugby league are our shareholders. So if I'm the if I'm the public company, I want to maximise my dividends to the shareholders. If I'm very costly up here, well, I'm minimising my dividends to the shareholders and. Without the shareholders, without the people putting on the show, you don't have anything. So you've got to make sure that they always stay viable and vibrant and and fully funded. And that's what I've really concentrated on in both racing and rugby league is to fund the people that put on the put on the event. It's interesting. We we we've talked about cost and cost efficiency, and but on the on the flip side of that is innovation. And a lot of times people assume innovation comes with a great great deal of cost. But you've managed to be able to balance the two perfectly, and and you know you've kept your costs in control, and at the same time done a lot of really innovative things. Um, and I, I just want to c- cut through some of these innovative things pretty quickly. I mean, you've done, you took on Victorian Racing, you saw there was a market there to be taken on you t- through New, in, for New South Wales Racing, and uh, you've created huge amounts of uh, prize money and revenues for New South Wales racing as opposed to what they used to own in Victoria. You've now sort of sort of uh, usurped them in some respects. So what's your greatest achievement in in, uh, in that regard in New South Wales racing? Look, I think there was two things. I think my greatest achievement was race field legislation. Um, and what, what I mean by that is, is that racing depends on wagering people having a bet we're not a tribal sport where you watch it because you like a particular horse you 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 watch it because you've had a bet on that horse and and hopefully you're going to win on that horse and what happened was we got these new bookmakers that domiciled themselves in the northern territory and um, weren't paying the racing industry to use the product and money was migrating away from the traditional wagering operators which was the tab to these waging operators domiciled in the Northern Territory. And uh, our revenues dropped dramatically because of it. So we had to do something. So when I started at Racing New South Wales, I went to Allen's and I got a 200 page legal opinion on enforcing copyright. And back in those days, there was a famous court case between uh, Telstra and a little software manufacturer on, they reproduced the, the yellow pages or the white pages, I can't remember which one, on a disc and Telstra sued them. And the court found that anyone that uses skill and labor has the copyright. And so I had 200 pages of legal advice to show how we were producing all that information to get the end result. Now in the end, the Telstra lost in the high court because it was found that they didn't use skill and labor to compile the white pages because it was all done by a computer. But in racing, we definitely did. We, you know, we name the horse, we register the horse, we handicap them, we place a jockey. There's 200 pages worth of processes. So someone said, oh, Peter, don't enforce copyright. That's going to take you years in the court. Go and, go and see the government and get what they call race field legislation and let the government take the, the bookmakers on. I thought, geez, that's a good idea. And again, never do it the easy way, see? So, so I went to government, got the race field legislation, and sure enough, all the bookmakers challenged it. And we were three years in the federal court and then ended up in the high court. And I got the vibe that we were going to win, so I just like the castle. And we won uh, unanimously. And that generates a billion dollars a year now to both sport and racing in, in just in Australia alone. So it was a game changer for, for not just for us, but for, for everybody. And, and, and that was probably the toughest time in my career because I was taking on these giants from internationally of, of wagering operators. And they, that their strategy was just to personally attack me. And 
And I remember interviewing this young kid that wanted to work at Racing New South Wales and he said, oh, I feel sorry for Mr. Volandis. He said, uh, and my staff said, why would you feel sorry for him? He's looking look after himself. He said, oh, no. He said, when I was working for the waging operators, he said, any spare moment we had, we had to make things up about him and put it online, you know, and just uh, – and it got to the point where I hated myself. It was that bad. Like it was, uh, it, it, it used to, but it never, it, but I knew I was doing the right thing and I knew our survival depended on it. And as much pressure as there was, you know, in not pursuing it, um, I did. And we, we, got the, we got the rewards. And without it now, we, there wouldn't be a racing industry because we wouldn't have been able to be funded. After that, I guess, um, is the Everest. Now the Everest uh, is an idea that came up from the Kodak example, I guess, in a sense that young people don't want to do what their parents do. So the Melbourne Cup was the parents' event. You know, we all grew up with the Melbourne Cup. I grew up with the Melbourne Cup. But the younger people, they want their own generational event. They, they don't want the, what their parents do. And I learned very quickly that if, once your parent went on Facebook, the kids went on Snapchat. When, you know, once they bought an Apple, Apple phone, they went to Samsung. They, they didn't want to do what their parents did. So I had to find something that was differentiated my product to the younger demographic. And it was the Everest. And, it, and I don't know how we did it, I've got to be honest, but it, it attracted the younger generation. And normally on a race meeting, we don't sell tickets because everyone waits till they get to the race course to see if it's raining or, and they buy the ticket at the gate. But we sold 22,000 tickets before and 80% were under the age of 30. We had cashless bars and we were monitoring who, you know, through the demo, through the, the data, who who was there. And basically the majority of the crowd that was at the bar was under the age of 30. So I used to get phone calls from, you know, people wanting tickets. Now I get phone calls from parents wanting tickets for their kids. And, and that really, you know, but the Everest had a bigger effect than that in the sense that you're right, Mark, in October, November, New South Wales racing didn't exist. All our race fields w went down. Everyone, everyone just migrated to Victoria and we were, you know, so our revenues plummeted with it. But what I discovered, and I've only discovered more recently, is that not only did they go for the two months, they actually went for six months because they got used to betting on Victorian racing and they got used to being in that area. So it took a long time for us to get them back with the Everest and then all the, well, the other races we've developed, our turnover has gone up 30, 40% because the customers have stayed with us the whole time. They may go a little bit in Victoria, but they still stay in New South Wales. And our revenues have grown dramatically because of it. So that one event, the Everest, has really been a game changer for racing in this state because it's enabled us to get more money, more revenues, and we've put it in to other events. So the Kosciuszko, which is another one. We've got the new race on Melbourne Cup, well, that other cup on, um, called, called the Big Dance um, at, at Randwick, which again, we're trying to attract the younger demographic. And what I've discovered since the Everest is when you go to the race meetings, five years ago, you'd go to a race meeting and everyone was over 50, over 60 years of age. That was the demographic. You go now and the demographic is under 25, 25 to 30. And it's remarkable how it's changed. And it's changed because of one event um, called the Everest. Which is similar to what you did in Harold Park. Yeah it, it, yeah, it was. Very it, it, similar. Very similar. Much yeah. bigger scale, very similar. In terms of rugby league, I mean, I, I, I know you went through the equine flu period and you had some experience with um, lockdowns, et cetera, when it comes to equine flu and the racing. But then when we had our lockdown, one of the things I remember is that um, you appointed, you and the rest of the NRL appointed Wayne Pierce as the guy to run the, the whole show, obviously with instruction, et cetera, and a strategy. But then you also brought in a lot of really high-level experts. There was a doctor that you brought in who was the guy who built your COVID plan, your protocols. And what I saw from that is that when you – and, in fact, that particular doctor has been on my own podcast. And, and what I saw from that is what you do when you make a submission to government in order to allow rugby league to be played on under certain protocols, you find experts or people with high cred – um, to support your argument. And when I step back, I see Peter Vlandis really is very smart at surrounding himself in an innovative way with high-powered people. But there's, there, you know, there's no skirting around the fact that you know high-powered people. You're in a high-powered job, but you know high-powered people. And you use high-powered people in the best possible way. What is your thinking about how important 
mixing or networking or mixing with the right people is in terms of getting what Peter Vlandis thinks he needs to get for rugby league, for example? Look, I think that was the secret of the success, if the truth be known, uh, in starting on the 28th of May. You know, Wayne Pearce is a, a remarkable uh, person and he was the one that called it the Apollo. And the reason for that is JFK wanted to um, go to the moon and, you know, in whatever the year was, but uh, the Apollo mission went earlier. So, it, so I said to him, we need to start before June and, he, and we both picked the 28th of May and I said, we can't look back, we've got to just do it on the 28th of May and, you know, uh, and people were pushing us to go in June and July and August, but it was costing us $13 million for every week that we didn't play. That's what was costing us. So we, and like it or not, the NRL did not have much money. Um, it, the majority of the money it had was prepayments from the broadcasters. So if the broadcasters said, pay us back, we were insolvent. So I, we, ha- we had to do it out of necessity. So what I'd started to do was I followed the infection rate and, and each day the infection rate came down and I was emailing all the major decision makers, the premier, the, the, um, the two broadcasters, anyone that I could think that, you know, that I could argue with, I would send them the daily infection rates. And I just kept doing that, kept doing that. But the secret of the success, which, which I think got us back is relationships and they are so important. I have this room at Rand, we call the director's room. And I call it the billion dollar room because it's generated a billion dollars for us in, in so many ways. And what I do there is I bring high, well, you know, the, the decision makers, both in politics, in media and anywhere else to that room. And you get to know them on a casual basis. You get to know them and they become your friends. And I never, ever speak business when they're there. I never, you know, I just want to entertain them to have a good time. But in the back of my mind, I know one day I'm going to need them, you know, or, or that relationship is going to, you know, pay a dividend. And so, you know, in 10 years of running this director's room, I never called anyone for anything. COVID hits, I rang every one of them. And I got a result out of every one of them. You know, I rang the, you know, the editor of the Daily Telegraph, the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, the, the, you know, anyone that I entertained, the prim- everybody, um, to get started on the 28th of May. And I... I genuinely believe if we didn't have those relationships, we would have been blocked. Um, but having, you know, the, the major uh, decision makers in the media ring and the politicians and etc. paid enormous dividends. And there's a lot of stories I could tell you, which I, I can't because we're filming it, um, how politicians change their views very quickly um, when there was media pressure on them. And you have been able to use that same process from my observations um, in terms of negotiating the new deal, the, the, the new broadcast deals, which you did during the COVID period. Um, you've used the same process of bringing in powerful people and even through whispers. I mean, you've become very good at this, um, the whole process that is include using whispers. I um, mean, whispers can be sort of pushed in through editors of newspapers, et cetera, or TV stations, et cetera, radio. Um, you've been able to push these things through these um, very subtle processes of sending messages. It's sort of like um, sending messages through the media, but in a very subtle way to force people to, not force people, to coerce people into the view that Peter Volandis wants, which Peter Volandis is doing for the betterment of the game. It's not for Peter Volandis. You, don't, you get nothing out of it. I mean, you get paid a wage, obviously, but you get paid nothing. You don't make anything out of it. There's nothing in it for you other than a triumph, a win for the organisation, for the NRL, for example. So right now you've got Perote in your sights and he's got you in his sights and he's the new kid on the block. It's important for him not to be seen as being told what to do by the commissioner for the, the chairman of the NRL, ARL. How's that going? How is how, how's your relationship going with the Premier? Well, it's got to the point every time I have a conversation with him now, I, I, I reach out for a Panadol. That's how it's going. Um, he, look, he's, as you say, look, he's a good guy, uh, Dominic Perrottet, and he's a he's a hard worker too. And he's, a, he's probably a harder worker than me because he's got seven kids. I don't know how he, <laughs> how he does it, um, having seven kids and then still being the Premier of New South Wales. So he, his time management is probably much better than mine. Look, he's a tough negotiator and he's a... 
Uh, he, he's trying to do the best, what he believes is for, the, for New South Wales, and I'm trying to do the best for the NRL. But what I like with these sort of robust debates, and you know, and I always said when I first started any job, is you've got to lose blood for the people that you're working for, because if you're not going to prepare to lose blood, you shouldn't be there. And that's what I do. You know, I go in there and I, I go hard, um, and because I want to get the result for that organisation that's entrusted me to represent them. And as you say, there's nothing in it for me. Um, it's 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 the law. I, I'm a very loyal person. Anyone that gives me loyalty, I give it to them back in spades. And if someone trusts me with something, I don't want to let them down. And that's what probably drives me the most. I think is that I don't want to let people down. I don't want to let the rugby league fraternity down. I don't want to let the racing fraternity. Down. They've trusted me in there. Say so yes. Look, I'm pretty pretty hard and. And I guess, as I said earlier, the thing is I treat everyone the same. I treat Dom Perrottet the same as anyone else. You know, he's got two arms, two legs, two eyes. He's, seven kids. And seven, and seven kids. That's probably his greatest achievement. I'll tell him that too. But he, he – um, so and, – and I find that works. If you treat someone exactly like you treat anyone else, you don't give them um, – so when he, when he gets – Kurt with me, I get Kurt back. You know, it's you treat people the way they treat you. So you call it ruthless. I, I mean, are you ruthless in your negotiation? Because you, 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 I don't. For me, it looks like you'll pull out whatever weapon that's required to win the negotiation, and then at the end of the negotiation, assuming you win or whatever happens, you shake hands and we just get on with it. Are you that ruthless? Now, what what I do, and I think it's well, we shouldn't be telling my secrets, but is you save your bullets. Sometimes you go in there and. You're not as hard as you should be. And they say, oh, geez, that's all right. And then the next time you go in there and you're really hard, they say, geez, he really wants this. You know, he, he's determined on this one. Let's let, let's let it slide. So that works. You know, so you, you've got to work out a strategy for each, each individual situation. At the moment, our argument with the state government is on suburban stadiums because I'm a firm believer that you need tribalism in rugby league and you want to look, look at Belmore Oval the other day. They got 16,000 people. You had 16,000 people at Acor Stadium and you wouldn't know they were there. There was no atmosphere. There was It was dead. Um, you take them to Combank Stadium now um, and and – what they've done, and they've done the same thing with Allianz Stadium, so once it's opened, you're going to see a different sporting arena, is, and I don't know how they've done it, but they've kept the audio within the arena. So even if you might have 100 people, but it sounds like you've got, a, you know, 5,000 at Combank Stadium. So when COVID was on, there's only 5,000 people. But the, the noise that came in, because all the noise stayed within the arena, was like it was... 30,000 people, and they've done the same thing, which is going to be great for the Roosters, at Allianz Stadium. Um, and what I've discovered is Parramatta have grown a leg since they've had Combank Stadium because they've got this great arena, et cetera. It, it generates – and we, but we need to do that for all the clubs. So we need Shark Park to have facilities um, similar. We need to have um, Leichhardt Oval upgraded. We need to have all these stadiums upgraded so, so the fans – can become tribal, they can walk to the ground. I remember when I played rugby league, is all I wanted to do was play at Wollongong Showground. I, I didn't want to play in Sydney, I just wanted to play in my local suburb, my local area, and you know, in front of my friends and families, etc. I didn't care about Sydney. And it's the same, we've got to get kids now that want to play at Penrith Park, they want to play at Combank Stadium, they want to play at their local suburban ground. And But it's not just about rugby league, it's about getting sport, you know, getting kids to play sport. Because as I said, my experience is you need to play sport. And I've got a 10-year-old boy and he, he plays on a, play, on a PlayStation Xbox. And he's the quietest kid you've ever seen. But once he plays Fortnite, which is that violent game, he becomes a different person. Um, and it worries me that you see these kids now and they're all online playing against each other on a, a game where to win you've got to kill someone, which to me, doesn't make sense. And you wonder, um, you know, all these tragedies that are occurring around the world, why are we teaching our kids that? So, so to me, it's important that we have these facilities and these stadiums to get the kids out and play sport. It's better for their mental well-being. It develops relationships with, with, with their mates and, and because you're playing a, a team sport. So the suburban stadium strategy is more than just um, rugby league. I think it's... It's something for the whole of the community. Peter, can I just uh, – I hope you can just indulge me for a second. Um, five quick questions, yep. quick answers. Um, Favourite drink? Uh, Pepsi Max. Pepsi Max. No alcohol? 
No, I don't really drink. No, I look. If, I'll have a beer socially, but but no, I, I don't go home have a wine or, or a beer. I think that I'll, actually there's this new probiotic drink that I have now, which is quite good. At um, I can't remember the name of it, but but otherwise it's um, Pepsi Max. Pepsi Max. Favorite restaurant in Sydney. Well, I used to like Pizza Hut, but it's closed down. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that was a great tragedy because as a kid, that was, that was you know, if I could go to Pizza Hut on a weekend, that was like uh, Lobster Mornay now. It's, uh, it was, uh, so that was my favourite restaurant. And to this day, you know, I still crave for a Pizza Hut pizza. It's quite weird, but, and a meat pie. So I'm not a, I'm not a person that goes to fancy restaurants. I, I, you know, this new Vaux Cuisine rubbish, you know, where you get one little drop and uh, anything tastes good if it's only one little part of it, you know. But when you have... So, you know, what's the use of going to a restaurant and then have to go to McDonald's after to eat? So, it's a, so uh, I'm not a big restaurant man. F- favourite past footballer, rugby league player? Uh, I, there's two. T- Teddy Goodwin and Graham Langland stick out for me as a kid, you know, because um, – and I remember – this is why I think players are such role models. I remember Graham Langland's coming to Wollongong um, to coach the, the team I was playing for. It was like God came to Wollongong to me. It was, I couldn't speak when he was there because he was my, my idol. And I don't think players realise the influence they have on these younger kids. My, my son is in love with James Tedesco. If James Tedesco gets a short back and sides, next week he'll get the short back and sides. He knows everything about James Tedesco. And he's just a, and I don't think the players realise how important they are to these to these young kids. Most complex conversation or complicated conversation or difficult conversation you've had with a, who's the coach, which rugby league coach, current or past? Mm, there's been you don't a have few. to reveal the conversation, but there's, it's just. There's, there's been a few. Um, who's geez. rattled you really? Like, uh, None of them have rattled me, I've got to be honest. Uh, <laughs> the, look, there's. Now, to be fair to the coaches, they've all been pretty good. You know, they've, they've all been pretty respectful. And once you explain to them what you're trying to do, they normally get on board. You know, when, during COVID, uh, it was funny because, um, you know, I had so many meetings. Like we had 60, 70 players on these Zoom. I'd never heard of Zoom up until COVID. Um, we'd have 70 people online and, you know, we had every coach. And so I went through and told them the strategy. Not one coach asked a question. You know, out of all the coaches, you would have thought that they would have been into me about something, but they didn't. They respected it. They respected the fact that what we were trying to do. And the beauty about COVID was they saw the other side. They saw the side where there is no rugby league. So they gave me sort of latitude um, to bring it back because they wanted it back. And whatever it took to get it back, they supported me. And it was the same with the players. There was a couple of players that gave me ones that didn't know basic maths, um, you know, because we paid – Players get paid from the 1st of October. Um, so you take that into account. So when it came to, you know, they were paid from October to March, but they wanted to start the year again from March. I said, no, wait a minute, you got paid from October. So they don't understand the word prepayment. So there was an argument with a couple of front rowers that, uh, and, it was, and it was quite funny because um, some of the players had my, had my phone number and they would be texting me, get that imbecile a calculator or something <laughs> like that. So it was quite funny because I'd be getting all these texts from the other players and knock on the player that was asking the question. So, um, but it, it was, uh, so there was no real coach that gave me a hard time. I, 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 look, it, it's the complete opposite. I, as I said, I learn things every day and, and Wayne Bennett was certainly been a, a good influence on me in a lot of ways, as has Ricky Stewart. Um, um, and a few of the other coaches, you know, if I, Craig Bellamy, Craig Bellamy's a very basic, you know, very nice human being when you get to know him. And he, he's, what you see is what you get with him, you know, and um, all the coaches that I've dealt with have been, you know, in their own way, very good to deal with. I think one of the really important things for us, and I think probably everybody agrees, not just people here today, but everybody would agree, that you're going to go down as one of our greatest sports administrators, Australian sports administrators of all time. And, you know, we've seen some good ones in the past rugby league, like Johnny Quayle, et cetera. But, you know, you are, you know, you're at the top of the top level. What's important for everybody, and this is a more personal question, we want you there forever. Health. What are you doing about your health? You know, you're 60, 60 years of age now? No, fi- 45 with GST is what I say. Okay. Um, I, and, uh, I so told you I lie about my age now, so I'm not going to tell you. So, so, but you're now looking at, you know, the next 20 years. 
what do you do around yourself? I noticed you've got an Ura ring on your yeah, hand. Look, I, you know, the funny thing is I, I've been married for nearly on 20 years and I've never wore a wedding ring. And I'm a real tech man. I just love every new tech. So there's this new Aura ring. So I got it for the first time um, yesterday and I wore it today. And so I went home to my wife and said, what the hell are you wearing? Um, you know, you wouldn't wear a wedding ring, but you wear a tech. But what this does actually, um, it measures your heartbeat and your heart rate pretty well 24 seven, which is one of the things I worry about when you're in these jobs is you don't realize that you're mortal like everybody else. And um, you know, you could have a heart attack and you, you know, you've seen what's happened with some of our sporting people like Shane Warne, et cetera. And what it does is it measures your sleep and your, but I, I, that's one thing I do look for is, is my health, is that I need to ensure, uh, because my father had uh, 11 um, siblings and they all died of cancer, all 11 of them. So when you're in the racing industry, that's not a good form guide. So you, you need to ensure um, that you do go and do your checkups and you um, don't think you're indestructible because we're all destructible. And so my greatest fear at the moment is my health. And, you know, so that's why I buy all these gadgets to, they're probably useless, but it, it psychologically gives me something to. Well, it builds awareness. It builds awareness. That's probably the word. And it makes you become conscious yeah, yeah. Of, of your health. And that, I think that's really important because I think we as a rugby league community in particular would want to know that Peter Valandis is going to stay doing the good job he's doing because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. I mean, I, I think that's probably fair to say. I, I want to thank you for your honesty and your frankness and everything you've said for any time in particular, but I'm going to just throw it to the audience for a few quick questions. We could have done this for three hours, but we don't have that much time. Do you think kids can play too much sport? No, I don't think so. I, I look. I think there's got to be a mix between team sport and individual sport, um, and I don't think a, a child should just play an individual sport because that's what they become like in in their in their life. I remember one of my ex chairmen was criticising this guy, and he, he called him the golfer. And I said, well, "Why do you call him the golfer?" He said, "Because he's always playing as an individual. He's never a team player." And that hit that sort of made me think you do need to be part of a team. So I think in sport, you should do both. You should be an individual game, like a tennis player or tennis, or, or and then play into, into a team sport. So I, I don't think there's ever enough sport because sport has just so many benefits, which you know, it has for your physical, your mental, and your later in life. Um, you know, people that you're gonna call upon 20, 30 years later um, is, is you, you meet them through sport. You mentioned um, rugby league and the juniors, um, and what's the rugby league doing to combat the AFL with their infiltration, especially here in Sydney at school levels? You see a lot of Aussie rule goalposts going up on school grounds now. What's rugby league doing to combat that? That's a very good question because I'm 100% agree with you. I think we've, we were asleep um, in relation to the AFL. They've infiltrated us, but, but they, their strategy has been very smart. And I take my hat off to them, to be quite honest. What they did is they've gone and got joint ventures with the education departments. And when I was a kid, that's where I started at school. And then you go from the school to the club. So it's very, very important to have a presence in the schools. And we haven't done that for the last five years or 10 years. And that's really cost us. Um, and our, demo, our dropouts really happened between the ages of 13 and 18 in junior rugby league. So the first thing we've done is we've actually employed two ex-principals to rectify our relationship with the education department, both in Queensland and in New South Wales. So we're gonna have a much greater presence at school. Um, to give an example, my son goes to, to Riverview, AFL's there with rugby union, no rugby league. Even at Hunters Hill Public School, when he was at the public school, there was no rugby league, there was AFL. And it's the same in, uh, in Queensland. So we need to start from the basics and go back to the schools and get a presence with the education department. And the one thing that, uh, that Wayne Pierce um, actually highlights is that most of the um, teachers now are female and in primary, and you want to start at primary school and they're intimidated by rugby league. They don't know how to coach a rugby league team. So we need to get a program out there that makes them feel comfortable, to, you know, these pr female primary school teachers to coach rugby league. And, and rugby league's got an advantage over all other sports because you can play so many varieties of it. You can play tip, tag and then contact. So you can start with tip and tag at school, which is not dangerous, um, and then work your way to contact. I'll give you an example of how we do things wrong. 
I was at the ANZ, um, the Anzac Day game between St George and the Roosters, and we had a, a, a someone next door in the private suite, and he came up to me and he said, "You know, I've been banging on for a month or like for years that my son um, goes to a private school, and he and the private school compels him to play on a Saturday, so." Rugby league in the clubs is played on a Saturday. I've asked them, change it to a Sunday and you will get so many more kids playing the game. So we, this is what I mean about adapting to, and in, not innovating, but adapting to the changes in circumstances. So one of the things we're going to look at is maybe changing it to a Sunday. So you're not competing against the, the, the private schools, rugby union, games, and etc. cetera. But um, your questions are very, very relevant because that's where I think rugby league has absolutely dropped the ball. We've got time for one more question. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self or young entrepreneurs? I think um, the advice I would give is never give up. You know, if you believe in something and you want to achieve something, never give up. Just, you know, I, and I always, look, I'm human like everybody else. And, you know, and in, in, in these two roles that I, I have, it's a roller coaster ride. One day you're on top of the world, you're thinking you're indestructible. The next day you're back at the bottom and you work your way up. But the thing that I never, is I never give up, you know. And I always say to myself, which is quite weird, dust yourself and get back up, you know. And God, there's been a lot of dust over my lifetime. That's what I say. But um, so I think that's the best advice I can give any kid, anyone is never give up. Just never, never, never give up. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to, um, on behalf of the Sydney Roosters and our business club members, and I want to thank you, like from the bottom of my heart, for your openness, your frankness, your honesty, and your generosity um, in terms of your time and uh, the content you offered us today, Peter. It's been, a, a, for me, it's been a great revelation and a great privilege to sit here and um, just chew the fat and talk to you about what sort of makes drives Peter Valandis and and at the end of the day, hopefully we all get something out of that and we all learn from it. We can take it home and put it into our own very daily lives. Well, it's a credit to you, Mark, because I've said a lot of things today that I probably wouldn't have said in my life and um, <laughs> you, you relaxed me up here, you know, so is there any way we can get rid of that video now? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.